If you have kids or pets, you know stains and odors in your carpet and upholstery are inevitable. But the experts at ChemDry can help. ChemDry removes odors and stubborn stains by sending millions of carbonating bubbles deep within your carpet. ChemDry lifts dirt, urine, and stains to the surface to then be extracted away, giving you a cleaner and healthier home. Call 1-800-CHEMDRY or visit ChemDry.com to connect with your local ChemDry and learn about special offers in your area. That's 1-800-CHEMDRY or visit ChemDry.com today. From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. This on? Hello? Hello? We're all science people. Science! Exactly. Evolution does some pretty funky things. That is a false fact. The old question in science is how do you know that? Achievement equals skill times effort. That's the recipe for success. I'm about to show you something so cool it'll blow your mind. We can make the world better for everybody. Starting now. Welcome, welcome to Science Rules. I'm your host, Bill Nye. This is the show where science rules. It's a call-in show, and if you want to be on the show, and I hope you do, leave us a voicemail at 201-472-0785 or go to www.askbillnye.com. You can also check me out on all the social media to find out about our upcoming guests. But today, my friends, I am joined once again by science writer, editor, and seriously people, dear friend, Corey S. Powell. Hello, Corey. Pathfinder sojourner, spirit, opportunity, and now curiosity, and now perseverance. Bill, what a time to be alive. I am, I am old enough to remember all the way back to 1997 when NASA landed this little lander and this little robot called Sojourner that rolled around on Mars. It was not much bigger than a shoebox. It had a little solar panel on its back. It didn't do a whole lot of science, but it was just like it was cool. We, you know, it was the beginning of something. No, we pulled it and off. Come on, we it pulled it. We pulled. We pulled cool. it off, and and look where we are now. From that, we have perseverance. We have this one-ton nuclear-powered, bristling with science ray experiments, gun carrying. ray gun-carrying, microphone-wielding robot on Mars, and we have somebody here, somebody special, somebody big in the program to tell us what perseverance is doing, what perseverance is going to do. Why we explore. Sorry to keep you waiting. Our guest today is Dr. Katie Stack Morgan. She is a research scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory and the deputy project scientist of the Mars Perseverance rover mission. Dr. Katie Stack Morgan, welcome to Science Rules. May I call you Katie? Yes, that's fine. And while I uh, also remember uh, Pathfinder, and I was a little younger than Corey, but I was uh, an elementary school. You don't school have to kid. rub that in. <laughs> And I went to an exhibit at the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum, and they had an exhibit on Pathfinder. And that was my very first, at least that I remember, uh, introduction to Mars and planetary science. And I remember going there, and I actually really liked the lunar exhibit they had. And I said to myself as a, 
you know, fourth grader or something, I'm going to discover water on the moon. <laughs> and I remember having that moment. And I, and I think that is really my formative moment of like, I'm going to be a planetary scientist when I grow up. Granted, I'm not looking for water on the moon, but I'm looking for it on Mars. So I got pretty close to that fourth grader ambition. So you started out as an astronomer, then you became a geologist. Is that accurate? Yes, I started off in college wanting to be an astronomer. And as a kid, I, I thought, you know, astronomy is where it's at. <laughs> um, and then I think as I kind of narrowed my focus a little bit, I, I took this class in college about planetary geology. And it, it was just a really eye-opening experience for me. And I realized, actually, that I really didn't know a whole lot about my own planet. And I don't even think I thought about Earth as a planet. And I thought, you know, I live here every day. You know, what's special about it? And and seeing our planet through the lens of a planetary geology class, I just was like, whoa, Earth is a planet. Um, and so then I was like, I have to figure out everything I can about this planet before I study other planets. So, Katie, what are you working on now with Perseverance? Now, everybody, you can't see this, but we have cameras. Over her shoulder is a map of the Jezero crater where Perseverance is wandering around right now. So what are you working on? Yeah, well, I'm a geologist by training and at heart. And so I've been fascinated by the geology of Jezero Crater and its area, surrounding area for years now. And I've worked with colleagues on mapping the rover's landing site. And uh, we're finally here. And so we are trying to understand the geology of Jezero Crater on the surface. And we're starting to get data back from the rover. And we're asking ourselves, what are these rocks that we have on the ground around the rover? Every rock tells a story. And so... What is Jezero Crater? Why did you? Why are we there? So Mars has a lot of craters, right? So why Jezero? Well, Jezero is pretty special. I think there are there are parts of Mars that expose really, really ancient rocks, and we're talking three and a half to four billion year old rocks, and and that's a period. How of time do you know that? Doggone it, people! Yeah, How do well, you know it's that? it's an estimate based on crater amount of craters on the surface. And that's something we know from the moon and, and crater chronology on the moon and looking at the distribution of craters. So surfaces that have more craters tend to be older than the surfaces that have less craters. Um, and so that's kind of how we, we calibrate relative age. Um, but that's how we think that parts of Mars are older than others. In particular, the southern highlands of Mars are very heavily cratered compared to the northern plains. So we think that that part of Mars is much older. So and but the whole, the whole planet's the same age, right? You're talking about the age of rocks. Is this after volcanism, after hot lava flowed on the surface or something? Yeah, I'm talking about the surface, right? The planet itself is, is the planet, <laughs> but <laughs> the, we're talking about the surface and, and the rocks deposited at the surface, whether they be volcanic rocks or sedimentary rocks, which we know Mars now has abundance of. And so we're talking about the age of rocks on the surface and those environments that are preserved in the rocks where we might be looking for signs of ancient life. Okay, but 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 why Jezero Crater in particular? What's cool about this place? Yeah, so so Jezero is in an area with very very ancient rocks, and partly we know that because there is a massive impact basin right next to Jezero Crater. That's the Isidus Impact Basin, and and that's been dated to about three point nine billion years old. So there's really not too much debate about that one. My understanding is Jezero is also river flowed there or a That's giant right. lake situation. Yeah. So one, we like Jezero because it punched through these really ancient rocks. And so it gives us this window into these this really ancient And when you say it punched through, it was some impactor from space. That's right. Creating yeah. the bowl that is now Jezero Crater. Um, but then that bowl filled up with interesting things. And one of the things it filled up with was a lake. And we think that there are other places on Mars that might have had lakes. 
but it's kind of a hypothesis in some cases. We have river channels flowing into craters, and then we don't have it flowing out. But here in Jezero, we have a river valley flowing into the crater and a river valley flowing out of the crater. So we know that it filled up like a bathtub and overflowed. So we Meaning know that, that there, there, used was- to, there used to be a lot of water on Mars, or there used to be at least pooled water and rivers of water on Mars. That's right. And a question we have when we look at craters and, and places where we think water is, was how long was water there? Uh, And it's a hard question to answer just by looking at the surface. But when you have that river in and the river out, you know that the water was there long enough to fill the entire crater. And that is exciting. The inlet channel must have a fabulous name. And the outlet channel has a fabulous name. Are they at different altitudes? Like, is the outlet channel higher than the inlet channel? Uh, They, I believe, are about at the same elevation, actually. And that's part of the reason we know that almost the entire crater filled up. Um, and, and actually, I helped to name the Inlet Valley. <laughs> uh, so I think it's a spectacular it? name. But, well, we kept with the theme of, of Jezero. So Jezero is, is in the kind of Bosnia-Herzegovina area. Um, and it's called, so the Inlet Valley is called Naretva Vallis after the Naretva Delta um, in that part of the world. And so we wanted to keep in that geographic theme. So the Balkans are kind of the, the icon for the way you're naming things on Mars? Well, so craters on Mars are, the way we name craters on Mars is established by the International Astronomical Union, and they have a theme for craters on Mars, and they have to be named after cities and towns with, I think it's less than 100 or 200,000 people. Jezero Crater was named after the town of Jezero, somewhere in that part of the world. Apparently, there are several towns that might be named that, um, but it Jezero means in it means lake, I think, <laughs> and so it's very appropriate. So let's get back to this lake. Do we know how deep it was? Do we know how long it was there? How do you even know these things? Yeah, well, we 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 have an idea for how deep it could be because we know what typical craters look like, and so based on how big they are, how deep they might be. So we think that. Jezero might have been filled with up to several hundred meters of water at one point in time. Um, We don't exactly know how long that water was around, um, but I'll say geologically significant (laughs) timescales, you know, not a a flash in the pan, uh, but enough to sit there and and fill up and then overflow. So we're not talking kind of a, a really short event here, but likely millions of years, if not, you know, longer than that. So then it is reasonably, thankfully thoughtful that there might be uh, living things there. There were living things there, rather. That's right. And I think any time we have water on the surface of Mars for a substantial amount of time, we're talking about a habitable environment and an environment that life could have existed and, and taken hold. We do have carbonates, which are very exciting to us, and we can talk about that. Let us talk about carbonates. Are these things that came from an asteroid? No. So carbonates... Uh, we think the carbonates precipitated, formed, came out of solution from liquid water on Mars in Jezero Crater. What, what's a carbonate that I would know out of my everyday experience? Limestone. Mm-hmm. Reefs in the Bahamas or the Great Barrier Reef. You can think about shells. The, those are made of carbonate. These are, these are largely biological things you're talking about on Earth, but these are not necessarily biological things on Mars. Is that right? That's right. Uh, carbonates on Earth are, are a mineral that are often associated with life, whether it's life incorporating carbonate into their hard body parts um, or environments where it's just teeming with life. But carbonates can form abiotically or without 
the, the presence or influence of life as well. And so we always have to keep that in mind when we're thinking about these kinds of minerals on Mars. And we first have to think about whether they could have been formed without life. But we get excited about carbonates on Mars because of that connection to life between carbonates and life here on Earth. Perseverance has basically just opened its eyes, started looking around. What do you see in these first images? You, as this as this geologist and thinking about planets, when you look around, what do you think of where it landed and what do you make of it? Well, the first thing I was looking out for was the delta. <laughs> and we could see the edge of the Jezero Delta uh, in the first images we took on Mars. That's where this river was running into the lake. Um, That's right. So the, the inlet valley, the, the river flowed into Jezero. And when that river entered the open body of water in the Je- in Jezero crater, it deposited sediment and it formed a landform called a delta, which is similar to deltas we have here on Earth. And, and we're familiar with Mississippi Delta, Amazon River Delta. And, and so we have that in Jezero crater and deltas are a great place. They're sedimentary deposits, great place to preserve organics and and possibly evidence for life. And so that's one of the reasons that we went to Jezero Crater with Perseverance. And so that was the first thing I was looking for in those images. And and I could see it in the distance, uh, a a scarp uh, with likely sandstones at the very top. What's a scarp? Help us out. Uh, It's a cliff, maybe about a hundred meter cliff. A hundred meter high cliff (laughs) off in the distance. (laughs) And so wait, so so now we we have to go off and drive there? Is that the deal? Is that what comes next? Well, that's right. And and actually, that's what the science team is really deeply engaging with now, because we landed uh, about two kilometers from the Delta. So we have to figure out how to get there. But of course, as is very typical for Mars missions, we happen to land on the other side of a basically uncrossable area. (laughs) And so we have to figure out, do we go clockwise or counterclockwise? And so the team right now is vigorously debating, you know, which way do you go? What's interesting along each of those routes? And it's like planning a road trip and trying to figure out, do you take the most efficient path or do you take the most scientifically interesting path? And, And there are pros and cons to both of those approaches. So what makes a path scientifically interesting? Well, some of the things you can see along the way or the diversity of rocks you might expect to find. Um, one of the routes we have is is very easy driving. So we think we can drive relatively easily, go along that route pretty quickly. The other route meanders a little bit more, is a longer distance, but it takes us by what we think are remnants of the Jezero Delta. So they're, they're cliffs or, or, and mounds of Delta deposit, but separate from the main Delta. You're talking about carbon, but are you also hinting at the idea that the carbon came from something alive? That's right. Where we are hopeful and optimistic that we might have signs of ancient life in these deposits of the Jezero Delta and the Jezero Lake. So how would we see them? Yeah. How do you look for it? And what do you, and what do you look for? Well, Perseverance, fortunately, is equipped with an instrument payload that can detect possible ancient biosignatures, including the distribution of organics in in rocks and soils that we look at. And so we have instruments on the rover that can see organics. How do, I mean, is it a a mythical mass spectrometer or one of these happy things? Well, not so mythical because it's actually on the rover right now. We do have an instrument called Sherlock, uh, which can detect organics using Raman spectroscopy. What are the science experiments? You're looking for geology, you're looking for possible indicators of life. What do you look for, you know, as you see these interesting locations? Yeah, well, signs of life and and biosignatures are are any pattern or texture or composition left behind by life. And that can take a number of different forms. 
But really the most powerful evidence for ancient life or a biosignature is when you see multiple pieces of evidence together. And so we often start with the textures or the patterns and you look at something, you say, well, hey, that doesn't look normal. (laughs) That doesn't look like, uh, you know, physics made that. It looks like life made that. But that's often speculation. and, And sometimes shapes and textures can trick you, especially when you're looking at them through the eyes of a rover on another planet. And so what is particularly powerful then is to overlay on top of those textures and morphology composition. Do you see distribution of elements um, related to those textures? And then you overlay the organics on top and say, do we have concentrations of organics coupled with certain elements or minerals coupled with textures that we're starting to have a hard time explaining by any way other than life? Let's try to get more sort of more concrete on that. So what kind of pattern, what combination of evidence would get you excited? Would you start thinking, ooh, this is this is something we need to look at more closely? Yeah, so we have a great analog from the Earth Rock record, and they're a feature called stromatolites, which are ancient fossilized microbial mats. And what they look like in the rock record here on Earth are very finely layered mounds, basically. And they come in all shapes and sizes, and, and they're very interesting textures in the rocks and very striking. Um, but When you look at these layered structures and you look at them with other wavelengths using various other analytical methods, like what we have on the rover, what you can see is you can see concentrations of organics in certain of these layers. Often it alternates. And then you can see concentrations of certain elements like iron or silica corresponding. Why does it alternate? Well, so in in an ancient fossilized microbial mat, so before it got fossilized, you had the microbial mat trying to outpace the sediment that was burying that mat. So you often get mat sediment, then the mat grows to get to the sunlight, then the sediment swamps it out again, and then the mat grows again. And so the mat is trying to compete with the sediment to to survive, and that's why you get this layered structure. So when you say getting to the sunlight, you're suggesting photosynthesis in stromatolites. This would be in places like Australia, and there's a stromatolite visible in Colorado, isn't there? Some place, if you know what you're looking for. There are stromatolites in a number of places on Earth. Uh, Montana are some of the, some of my favorite stromatolites. Speaking about formative science experiences, I remember as a relatively young person uh, watching Cosmos, the famous Carl Sagan TV show. And there's an episode in which he takes a fossil stromatolite and then he walks to an actual living stromatolite. You know, he shows a, you know sort of a cross section of a of a modern bacterial mound and it looks just like this fossil and it was it was so cool like like things that happened billions of years ago are still happening now on earth and so you're trying to figure out are these same things happening or did they happen on mars stick around for more science rules after this If you have kids or pets, you know stains and odors in your carpet and upholstery are inevitable. But the experts at ChemDry can help. ChemDry removes odors and stubborn stains by sending millions of carbonating bubbles deep within your carpet. ChemDry lifts dirt, urine, and stains to the surface to then be extracted away, giving you a cleaner and healthier home. Call 1-800-CHEMDRY or visit ChemDry.com to connect with your local ChemDry and learn about special offers in your area. That's 1-800-CHEMDRY or visit ChemDry.com today. From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. 
The real excitement comes from the ride to get there with seven drive modes. Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. Science Rules is back. One of the wonderful things about this mission, first of all, it's a plutonium-powered car on another world, right? And you made reference, Katie, to the Sherlock instrument, which is a fabulous acronym, Scanning Habitable Environments with Ramen and Luminescence for Organics and Chemicals. And then there's a Watson, and there's a Pixel, and a Meta, and a Moxie, and a RimFax, what is the management structure at Jeppepol? <laughs> and then the parachute has a code in it. What is the management structure at Jet Propulsion Lab that enables all this? Is it a consensus? How does this go? At the core of what JPL does is we want to have successful robotic missions. And so we're making every part of the rover to the highest standard we can and testing and testing and making sure that that what we what we make here at JPL is going to work on another planet. But I think so many of the folks who work at JPL, you know, they're whimsical people. <laughs> they, they're doing what they're doing because they have this fascination with cool things and, and gadgets and, you know, making things work. And I think you start to see that in, in some of the, the kind of whimsical things that come out with the rover, like the code on the parachute and, and the inside jokes. And I, I was a grad student at Caltech. And so I, experienced an environment at Caltech where, you know, practical jokes are everywhere and inside oh, jokes are everywhere. <laughs> and so, you know, I think a little bit of that seeps into JPL too, where, you know, again, the the first thing, the first priority is making sure that these missions work the way, the way they're supposed to. And, and we have to make sure that that's true. But I think anytime there's a little bit of room for, for something extra, folks have lots of ideas for how to make these, these missions more personal and, and more personable. Boy, that's the key word, more personal. Before we get into the specifics of all these cool acronyms, the big question, there were what, four rovers on Mars before this one, including Curiosity, which looks sort of superficially similar. What's new? What's what's really different and pioneering about Perseverance? Yeah, the first thing that is different is Perseverance's role in Mars sample return. And so Perseverance is the first step of possible Mars sample return to bring samples from Mars back to Earth. And so it is designed, it has a whole system within it uh, to collect and, and, and depot samples on the surface of Mars. And that required technology way above and beyond and very different from what Curiosity carried with its sampling system. So that is dis- difference number one. I think another thing we often point to is the wheels. The wheels on Perseverance are stronger, heavier, thicker, uh, because the wheels on Curiosity have actually been really problematic. Um, Apparently, it's, so- it's hard driving on Mars. Who knew? <laughs> Well, it, it was even harder than we thought. <laughs> and only a couple hundred days into the mission, we noticed these these tears in the metal wheels of, of Curiosity. And so we've been very careful about the terrain we drive on in Gale Crater, where Curiosity is exploring. Uh, but for Mars 2020 and Perseverance, we didn't want to have to worry so much about that. And so we redesigned the wheels to make them more robust and stronger to handle the rocky Martian surface. So is it harder rock, rougher rock, scrapier rock? What What's the difference? They were pointier. Oh, uh, pointier. Uh. Pointier, yes. You touched on a really cool part, which is you're collecting samples. Like, how do you do that? How do you, how do you collect a sample and where do you put it so that you can get it later? 
right? Well, we have a, the rover has a whole system uh, for collecting an intact drill core. And, and that's a really important point because Curiosity collects samples, but it drills everything into a fine powder. And so any of that texture is really destroyed in the process of collecting the sample. But for Perseverance, we want to maintain the texture within the, the rocks themselves because that's so valuable for looking for signs of ancient life. So we collect with Perseverance intact drill cores and we put them into tubes in the body of the rover and seal them up and take this tube through a number of different stations uh, using a little tiny arm in the body of the rover. So, so Perseverance actually has two arms instead of just one. Uh, and we have this whole sample handling assembly to care for these samples while they're in the body of the rover. And then when we decide, we can drop these sample tubes onto the surface of Mars for a follow-on mission to pick up. When you say a drill core, you're talking about a, a cylinder. Was it a hollow, like a hole saw? The samples are like their cores, they're complete cores, and they're about the size of your pinky uh, and weigh about as much as a golf ball. And that's about how much sample is in each each one. We have a, a drill bit that goes, it's hollow, and then it drills down. Yep, yeah, that's and it collects the, yeah. the core, yep. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, how many samples are we going to take? Can we hold? We have uh, 43 sample tubes, uh, but we typically think about 30 samples is, is what we're aiming for to get back to Earth. Uh, but Mars always throws curveballs at you, so you have to be able to adapt on the fly. And also, there's an element of every Mars mission that needs to be discovery-driven. And so we don't know what we're going to find in advance on the surface. And so some of these decisions we will have to make on the fly. Okay, well, hold on, because there's a big part of the story that we haven't gotten to yet, which is you're collecting these samples, you're kind of dropping them on the ground in certain places. Uh, who's going to pick them up and bring them back? <laughs> well, it won't be Perseverance. So it'll be uh, the follow-on mission. And right now they're developing the architecture. NASA working with some international partners, like ESA. Uh, they're working on the architecture for Mars sample return and the follow-on missions. And so right now the mission that comes after Perseverance would have three main parts to it. A sample uh, retrieval lander a fetch rover, and uh, Mars Ascent Vehicle to get the samples uh, into Mars orbit. When will we have samples back on Earth? The earliest opportunity for the this next set of follow-on missions is in the 2026-2028 timeframe. If all goes well, I could imagine that we'd have samples back by 2030. 2030. Everybody just think how long this all takes. You know, people have been talking about this mission since the 1970s, the first rover 1997, this rover 2021, samples back by 2030. This is the long game, people. This is really something. But I will claim again that if we were to find evidence of life on Mars, it would change the course of human history. Everybody would think differently about being a living thing because of the two questions. Where did we come from? Are we alone? With that said, uh, I've been to the Mars yard at Jet Propulsion Lab where you guys drive simulated gizmos around to see what'll work. Can you tell us among the many acronyms that are intriguing, Sherlock and Watson, Moxie, what is optimism? Yeah, so optimism is the Earth twin for Perseverance. So it's the rover that's very like Perseverance, but it lives here on Earth. And it stands for Operational Perseverance Twin for Integration of Mechanisms and Instruments Sent to Mars. <gasps> Whew. 
Curiosity also has an Earth twin, and her name is Maggie. But these are the uh, the rovers that are as close as possible to what the rover on Mars is like. Um, and we operate them here in what we call the test bed, which is the Mars yard. And they these rovers live in the Mars yard here on Earth. And we can uh, test out certain aspects of rover operations using these Earth twins uh, to help us better command and prepare for carrying out activities on Mars and, and to do that safely. So there are sometimes there are things that we want to test out here first before we do it on Mars. Let me ask you just as an engineering question, you know, I'm a mechanical engineer. If when we're on Mars, when uh, Perseverance is on, Mar on Mars, it has like 40% of the gravity. How much weaker does the arm get to be on Mars? Like when you're running Optimism, is the arm strong enough to pick up stuff on Earth in Earth's gravity, or is it too weak? Right. So they, we actually do have a version of the rover that is kind of scaled for Mars gravity, and that's called Scarecrow Rover. And so Scarecrow Rover is mostly a rover that we use for mobility testing, so drive testing. So Scarecrow is a very pared down, and they call it Scarecrow because it really looks like a pared down rover. Um, but that's kind of been scaled and calibrated for the difference between Earth and Mars gravity. Its clothes just hang on it. They did clothes just <laughs> hang on it. That's right. So, so hang on now. Hang on. If we get these rocks back, you uh, uh, are going to be around in 2030. You're going to be a part of the team to have a look-see at these things. What are you hoping to see? Here's a, something the size of a golf pencil or your pinky finger, right? What are we hoping to see in there in the best case? Well, best case, we would find signs of ancient life. And that could be in the form of, you know, single-celled microbes that we might find or the, the patterns or textures or minerals that they left behind. Um, but I think it would be those signs of ancient life is really what we're looking for first and foremost. Microfossils you're talking about? Yeah, that, that would be that would be one thing that we would look for. And, and I think that would be probably the, well, I, I say easiest. Nothing is, is easy here. And, and it would lead to great debate about whether whether what we're seeing is, is truly a sign of ancient life. And we can look to the ALH H4001 Allen Hills meteorite as an example of the kind of debate that can arise when you see textures and 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 minerals that are unusual. For those who are not uh, immediately familiar with ALH84001, um, I, was, I was actually there at the press conference. This was in 1996, I think. There were a group of researchers studying a meteorite that came from Mars, and they saw chemical and microscopic evidence in the rock that made them think that it had likely signs of ancient life. And Bill Clinton talked about it from the Rose Garden, and there was a giant NASA press conference, and then there was a huge debate of, you know, was this real or not? And, and I guess, what are the lessons from that? You know, because I think most people now don't consider that credible evidence of life. You know, does that tell you, do you need to be more careful? Is it, is, is it too easy to fool yourself? Were people too skeptical? What lessons do you take from that? Yeah, well, I think first and foremost, the the really great gift that Alan, the Allen Hills meteorite gave us was the Mars Exploration Program and the excitement that it generated and really just getting people thinking that, you know, this is a possibility. We could find signs of ancient life on Mars. But I think with, with careful study and analysis and, and scientific debate, ultimately, you're, you're right. The community decided that much of what, what we saw is not a sign of ancient life. And we learned important lessons along the way, like scale is very important. Some of those textures uh, are at a scale that is much smaller than, than life as, as we know and expect it 
to be able to form. So that was an important lesson. And I think it, it taught us that the bar needs to be very high <laughs> for us to, to claim that we have found signs of ancient life. And, and I think that has affected how subsequent missions, including Perseverance, go about the search for signs of ancient life. And, and that's really important because we don't want to have a, a false detection here. Because as, as Bill, you said, it is such a profound paradigm-shifting discovery to say we found ancient life beyond our own planet. And it's not one we want to make lightly. So I think bar is set high. We have an email from Mike in Detroit with the new discovery of liquid water on Mars. Would you say it's a new discovery? Answer that question, but then to go on. Do you think it's likely there could be living creatures, not just microbes, deep in the water? similar to the creatures we see in the very deep oceans here on Earth? That's Mike's question from Detroit. Yeah, well, I'll I'll tackle the first question that you posed to me, Bill, which was, how new is the discovery of water on Mars? And we have known for at least, I'd say, a decade and a half, been pretty confident about abundant liquid water on the surface. And, and, And it goes back even earlier than that as well. Uh, but really, I think it was our orbiter spectrometers who could observe minerals that have water in the structures of those minerals that really kind of changed our view of how abundant water was on the surface of Mars. And, and that was around uh, kind of early 2000s period of time. Um, but getting back to, to Mike's question about Nessie deep under deep underground on Mars. Yes. You know, um, we know today that the surface of Mars is uninhabitable to life as we know it. Uh, but I think there's still questions out there about whether the subsurface of Mars could host life today and whether it could support life. And we had some recent discoveries come out um, from radar systems looking at Mars to, that discovered what we think are subsurface aquifers and bodies of water. Um, but I'll say based on what we know about Mars today and what previous missions have discovered, we don't necessarily expect to find complex life forms on Mars. To answer even, Mike's question. That's right. And even though there may be niches on Mars today that are habitable, Mars has obviously gone down a very different and more difficult path for habitability than our own planet. And so... It's, it's just not what it used to be. That's right. It really isn't. And our best guess for when Mars was a habitable planet is early in its history. And so... But but then something changed and, and a, a swip, switch flipped and... and Habitability took a, took a turn there. And so it's likely that Mars got to the point where life really couldn't evolve past a, a very simple form. And, and that's our current expectation and, and, and what, we know, what we expect based on what previous missions have discovered. If you wanted to find deep life, if you want to understand these aquifers, do you need to do a deep drilling mission? Would that be a future direction to go in? I think that would potentially have to be the the direction you go if you want to get deep into the subsurface of Mars. Uh, and JPL and other places are thinking about how to do that. But it's if you think landing a rover on Mars is hard, imagine landing a rover with a, a, a giant drill <laughs> uh, to get deep into the subsurface. And, and we saw very recently InSight, uh, the InSight lander, struggling with with drilling into the regolith of Mars. And so it, it's it's not an inconsequential thing to to drill deep into a surface of a planet. And so that's something that that NASA is thinking about, but we're not quite ready, I think, to do that kind of a mission yet. I've been to Death Valley, and there are rocks where you they're not even not even an inch thick, and you chip them up, you get them up, and they they have cyanobacteria. They got the blue green algae growing underneath them, 
And when you look at this place, it looks like a complete desert, nothing alive. Unless you look really, really carefully, you wouldn't even notice these metabolizing green plants. And so they got this fake, what is this? They live on rocks, just underneath rocks, rather, just thick enough to let just enough sunlight come through so they can just make a living. So what are the possibilities that there's something on Mars literally right below the surface? How are you guys have a plan to go looking for those? You must. Well, Perseverance, it's looking for signs of ancient life. And, and there's a difference between the kinds of things you'd probably want to bring if you're looking for ancient life versus extant life. And those are very different objectives. Uh, another thing that Mars has, life on Mars today would have to contend with and, and why, you know, just scratching the surface probably isn't enough is because of the radiation that Mars experiences. Mm -hmm. And Mars as a planet isn't shielded by an atmosphere and a magnetic field to prevent that radiation from affecting the surface. And so, again, life as we know it today probably can't survive at or in the near subsurface because of that. But again, there, there's the possibility that deep in the subsurface, if ancient life once was present on Mars, you know, maybe it retreated. <laughs> uh, life is very versatile, at least here on Earth, and it could have retreated to find a more habitable niche somewhere else on Mars. And so, you know, that's a possibility. Science Rules will be right back. From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. You're listening to Science Rules. Are you living on Mars time? I am, although it's a hybrid Mars time because I got the kids and they don't really do the Mars time thing. So oh, yeah, I but... sleep when I can. It's it's like having a newborn. It's like I, we birthed a rover on Mars and now I'm going through the newborn pick phase. How, how, how old are your kids? Two and five. Whoa. Okay. Yeah, that's that's a bad age to get on Mars time. And I have a 25-day-old rover. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but that's such a cute age for a rover. <laughs> well, growing pains. <laughs> yeah. You have a rock hammer, I'm sure. And you walked around as a geologist, you walk around with your rock hammer and you chip away at stuff. And the whole thing is you guys, geologists, look for a place to, an interesting place to sample a rock, right? And so that's why there's a rover, is you can, you have mobility. You can go look to interesting things. Well, wait, wait, there's more. There's a helicopter. You brought a helicopter with you this time. Yes, we did. <laughs> what what can that do for you and how does it work? Yeah, so uh, Ingenuity is the name of the helicopter riding along with Perseverance. And uh, Ingenuity is a technology demonstration, so really a proof of concept for a technology that could be used in the future. Uh, but we'd like to demonstrate that we can operate a rotorcraft on the surface of Mars in a very different kind of environment than we would have here on Earth. And the atmosphere of Mars is much thinner. And so you need to think about that when you're designing a, a helicopter. Some of the things we've talked about in terms of uh, the surface of Mars being challenging to traverse 
a, a helicopter wouldn't have to deal with that because it's primarily flying and hopping from place to place. And so it has some freedom of, of movement uh, that a rover may not have or, or even a, a human may not have on the surface of Mars. And so we're very interested in, in testing this kind of technology for future robotic and as a support for human exploration as well as a scout. How high off the surface can Ingenuity fly? You know, I think we're looking to to, to test that out and, and we're looking to see. We'll be looking for the, the first flight to, to find out how, how high we're able to go. With this Ingenuity helicopter, we'll be able to see much farther, right? You'll be able to see many, many meters, kilometers off in the distance. Is that going to help inform which way to drive? It must. Yeah, it could. And and this is where we have orbiter images. And so that gives us this really bird's eye view, uh, space bird eye view of the surface of Mars. And then we have the rover eye view. But there's a gap there that the helicopter and its images can fill. And so it will give us a, a bird's eye perspective, but at a higher level of detail than the orbiter images can provide. And so exactly like we have up in front of us now, this decision about how to get to the Jezero Delta. Uh, a helicopter and its imaging could really help scout out, you know, what what's the value of these different paths. That's not necessarily in the in the plan for for ingenuity because it is is simply a, a technology demonstration. But there are many ways you could think of in the future that pairing a helicopter with a lander or a rover or a human explorer could really enhance exploration of a planetary surface. So is the helicopter going to, you know, what you do, it's, I'm not a geologist, but when you go looking for fossils, you look for a, a, a carving where the river or stream has cut through the land because nature's dug for you. Is it like that on Mars? We're going to look at the cliff face, the scarp face? That's right. And, and what you're really looking for there is, is outcrop, is rocks in place where they formed. And that's always more valuable to geologists than a boulder here and a boulder there. <laughs> and so we are going to be looking for exactly that same kind of thing. We're going to be looking for the road cuts, uh, but formed naturally on Mars <laughs> by rivers and, and erosion. A road cut. Corey. Yes, if, if any Martians made road cuts, even better, but we'll not count on that. Corey, wait, wait, Corey, Corey, wait, Corey. Bill, I, I hear something. Hear it's, it's a sound carried by a terrestrial atmosphere very clearly. Yes. It sounds like thunder, which means, Katie, Dr. Morgan, it's time for the lightning round in which we will ask you lightning fast questions. And to the extent of your ability and desire, you will give lightning fast answers. Are you ready? Okay. I think yes. so. <laughs> Okay. All right. What is the most misunderstood thing about your work? That we are uh, looking for plants and animals on the surface of Mars today. <laughs> How would you celebrate if you found a plant and animal on Mars? You had a plan for celebration? Or if you found I persuasive would... evidence of ancient life. Let's, let's, let's put it that way. I would probably pass out. <laughs> wow. Wow. Take it easy. That would really be something, huh? If it yeah. was proof. So this is in 2030. You crazy kids are in your lab. You carefully, carefully open this thing up, and then there's evidence of life. <gasps> Boom. She's out. That's Knocked right. over. Yeah. Yeah. If you could go to Mars, would you go? Would you volunteer to be the first scientist on Mars? Absolutely not. I love my robotic explorers. <laughs> uh, why not? You know, I have... Going back to my early Smithsonian days, I never wanted, I never said to myself, I know a lot of people in planetary science got here because they wanted to be an astronaut. I have always wanted to be a scientist on Earth. On <laughs> so Earth, you're, yeah. you're, you're happy with your robot surrogates? That's right. I am happy with them. So what planet would you explore next? It doesn't have to be a planet. You can also pick a moon or an asteroid. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I probably would go for Titan. Titan. 
Uh, Titan's a good one. We're going to be flying on Titan. Uh, with, That's uh, right. An octocopter. <laughs> That's right. Well, I like sedimentary rocks and sedimentary processes, and Titan has lakes and sedimentary rocks, perhaps, but made of hydrocarbons. That blows my mind. So I want to go to Titan. <laughs> uh, and you'll be around for that mission around 2034. Yeah. Yeah. That'll be really something. Uh, speaking of uh, the octocopter and Sherlock and Watson and Moxie, what is your favorite acronym? Or pick a good one. Well, Doesn't okay, have to be so your favorite. I will. I'll, I'll say an acronym that we actually didn't end up using, but I want to share. Oh, cool. It's so How fantastic. Cool. <laughs> so um, we had, uh, in preparation for Mars 2020, we put the rover team through a series of uh, tests to simulate rover operations. And that was called ROAST, R-O-A-S-S-T, Rover Operations Activities for Science Team Training. However, one of our engineers, his name is Raymond Francis, he came up with an acronym called ROTISSERIE. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't remember what it stood for, but it was incredible. And if we could have called this activity rotisserie, we really should have. But we well, settled on roast, a little little bit easier to say. There's at least two more missions. <laughs> one to, to pick up the samples and one to bring it back from orbit. Come on, it'll be fun. Has anybody reverse engineered an acronym for perseverance? Uh, not that I've heard. That's a good okay. idea, though. We hey, should do that. listeners. <laughs> well, we'll leave, we'll leave that as, a, as an activity for the listeners, yes. Yeah, hey, listeners, come up with a cool acronym for perseverance. This is cool. Katie, thank you so much. Our guest today has been Dr. Katie Stack Morgan, a research scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, JPL, and the deputy project scientist of the Mars Perseverance rover mission. Now, remember, when it comes to digging in the ancient secrets of the red planet... Science, science rules. rules. If you like science rules, and I hope you do, please take a moment to rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us out, helps other people learn about the show, helps us find out what you want to hear about. So thank you. Be sure to look at my socials for more information about our upcoming guests. I'm at Bill Nye on everything. Meanwhile, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, give us a call at 201-472-0785. Or submit a question to askbillnye.com. Science Rules is produced by Harry Huggins and the very same Corey S. Powell. Right here on Earth. Frank Olson mixed this episode. Casey Alford composed our original theme. Josephine Martiron is our executive producer. And at Stitcher, everyone, Science Rules. Stitcher. From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions.